Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. I am so excited to finally have John Paracella on the podcast. When I started working in politics in 2007, I was almost immediately immersed in a world where legends were real. John had already and rightfully earned that title. When we talk about the backstage of politics, John Paracella is most definitely the very definition of that statement. His involvement with the Quebec Liberal Party started in the late 70s as he quickly climbed the ranks to become the party's director general. He has served five Quebec Liberal Party leaders, among which three became premiers. He has played a crucial role in organizing general election campaigns, as well as three referendums. He has represented Quebec as a delegate general in New York and Washington, D.C. He is often called upon for political commentary on various media outlets. He is an author, but most of all, as he likes to say, he is passionate about teaching. On this episode, we walk through this very exciting and often challenging journey as he shares his encyclopedic knowledge of Quebec politics, but also some of his personal stories and thoughts. I cannot express the level of appreciation I have for him and am very grateful for his generous time. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, John Paracella, thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, I have to say you are an absolute gentleman uh, for accepting this. I really appreciate you, and uh, I'm grateful for the time that, that, you, uh, that you're giving. Uh, we've, we've been trying to make this work from the beginning of the year. Uh, That's right. But unfortunately, there were some circumstances that we all had to kind of adjust to. Uh, how, how, how's this period been for you? I mean, how have you been coping through, throughout this? Well, I've stayed very busy. Um, I'm at an age where a lot of my... Uh, uh, contemporaries have either retired, uh, uh, you know, or I, I hate to say this, some of them have, uh, there's at least three of them that I lost in the course of the year. So uh, that doesn't uh, make you feel uh, eternal, that's for sure. So, um, but I stayed busy. I work, um, I do a lot of remote work. I've been doing a lot of conferences, did over 30 conferences between September and now on U.S. politics and the impact this could have on Canada. Second, Secondly, um, I've been doing some consulting, um, not a lot, but a bit to, um, uh, I say the equivalent of a, of a full day, you know, so it's spread over a couple. Uh, thirdly, I've been doing teaching. I teach at the University of Montreal. I, uh, I'm part of uh, uh, one of their master's programs, and I do some training at uh, Global Affairs for potential diplomats or potential uh, public servants uh, who are in place in Ottawa but are planning to go to the United States. Right. So since I was Delegate General in uh, New York and was responsible for the uh, Washington office, I can, bring, um, I can bring something to the table. And then the rest is uh, basically um, writing a few articles, um, doing some media work, depending on the situation. When, when they, they reminisce, it's on this year was uh, OCA, uh, the 30th anniversary of Oka, the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Beach Lake Accord. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, we, um, we, we 
we had people uh, like uh, Claude Castonguay who passed away that I was asked to uh, to comment on. Uh, but overall, it's been um, a busy uh, year. In some ways, uh, uh, productive and busier than than maybe the last two or three before. So I actually adjusted to. Um, uh, to remote work, to the virtual work, and I'm actually quite pleased to do this with you because um, I think uh, the workplace is going to be going through some transformations. Right. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to where we were before. On the other hand, I don't think we're going to completely um, you know, be in a world whereby what we did before we won't do again. So uh, I think a hybrid formula where people will work from home a bit more, uh, they got to be closer to their children. I think they realize that uh, if their children have to be careful about uh, class sizes and stuff like that because of uh, COVID over the next year or two, um, hopefully it won't be two, but uh, it could be. I mean, like it or not, uh, um, you know, we we uh, didn't expect to be in this. I mean, a year ago, uh, the first cases in Wuhan took place and we didn't know. Nobody knew. Yeah, exactly. And then in January, we heard about it, talked, to, heard the politicians say a few words, but nobody took it seriously. And so, um, you know, I, I remember I took my last train ride um, on Via from Ottawa on, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was March 10th or or, or uh, 11th, and I had somebody actually sitting close to me, next to me, and. Um, Obviously, over the next 14 days, uh, when the confinement started, I called my doctor and he says, well, he says, look, he says, stay home. Don't go out. Don't do anything uh, with anybody uh, in particular, except uh, stay home with your wife and uh, and just be uh, see if there's any symptoms. And uh, so I got through that. And um, uh, but it gives you, um, you know, we, we adjusted. I mean, uh, adapting and adjusting uh, was probably the biggest challenge this year. For sure. And, you know, it's going to be challenging, especially for, uh, you know, for people like us who have worked so much uh, with people, right? I mean, we, we, we get, like, it's fuel for us, right? I mean, there's so much energy that we, we, that, that we need, you know, to do this kind of work. And suddenly, you're asked to, to not talk to people, not meet people, <laughs> you know, I mean, not go out where people are, are, are at. Uh, and it, it's difficult. I mean, you know, I, I was listening to you, I'm hearing you saying that, you know, perhaps the workplace is going to change. And for sure, I mean, eventually, you know, we're going to have to transition and evolve. And if, if this is the new uh, technologies of the future, then everyone's pretty much going to ad adopt them. But at the same time, it feels like you need that human touch, right? I mean, there's certain fields and there's certain jobs out there that if you don't have this, it, it kind of makes you sick. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. you, you need to you know, to, to, to see other people and to kind of interact and even to hug and to shake hands and, you know, all those normal things that we used to do. It's difficult to imagine how interacting like this will be normal. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's a very fair observation and I, and I would be very careful when I said there will be changes to leave you with the impression that we're going to change so much that what we knew before will become history. I think we're going to shake hands again. I think we're going to hug. Um, and I think Farid Zakaria, who's on CNN on Sundays, took uh, had a, an editorial about, uh, oh, I'd say about five, six weeks ago where he said, human beings like to intermingle. And I believe that. Uh, I mean, I know you, um, and I know the type of personality you are, but uh, I also know uh, this career I had would not have been possible doing it by virtual 
on screen. Well, uh, (laughs) well, even if it would have existed, I don't think I had the personality to grow in that kind of atmosphere. I can do a conference. Uh, Yes, two days ago I did one. Apparently there were 5,000 people online, so I really felt good about it and everything. But the fact of the matter is I didn't see any faces except for for about five or six people who were on the screen. And, of course, I took took questions from the person who was interviewing me, and, and we were both big on the screen, so I didn't actually see anybody. And then I got about about 10 questions that came from the audience. Again, I didn't uh, hear the questions. They yeah. were they were actually sent in to the moderator. Uh, I would have difficulty, uh, and also in my teaching, to not see the eyes and to not see the reaction. And um, I, I had a type of career, uh, uh, George, that uh, I, I summarized my career in three big um, uh, periods. Uh, a, I, I was an educator. I was a teacher, high school teacher in Park X, by the way, um, and in Montreal North. Uh, secondly, I went into politics, and I did politics at different levels. I was uh, I was an organizer. I was um, a, di- a director of the Liberal Party. Um, I then uh, helped find uh, create Alliance Quebec, which was an English rights group. I then worked um, uh, with the Commissioner of Official Languages. Uh, doing uh, relationships with the uh, French and English-speaking communities of Quebec. Uh, and then I went into business, and I, um, I ran an ad agency um, and developed a uh, consulting uh, 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 management reputation group, or excuse me, a reputation management group, um, uh, and then I went on to, to do some diplomacy in New York uh, on behalf of the Quebec government. And then I came back and I did philanthropy for the University of Montreal. Now, these are very people-oriented uh, occupations. There's just no way you can do this by um, having a CV uh, sent to somebody. They got, people got to see how you act. They got to see your judgment. Uh, when you're in a meeting right now uh, with 10 or 12 people, you speak when you're asked to speak. But if you interrupt other people, it, it becomes annoying. I mean, right now, we're planning um, uh, our Christmas dinner, my wife and I, and my daughters who live in Vancouver. Now, clearly, we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to do it with a screen. Yeah. But as my one of my sisters was telling me, she says, you know, I I was thinking of doing that with my own kids, but she says, you know, I get annoyed by the fact that uh, uh, you know we can't talk over each other, which is what we would do <laughs> over the regular dinner, um, and uh, and when somebody's telling a story, um, we we. Uh, we want to interreact in the telling of the story, you know, and sometimes we get into the habit that you let somebody's talking. So you said, let them finish and then we'll, we'll speak afterwards. Well, you know, uh, Christmas dinner is not a formal occasion. No, it's exactly. a family occasion. It's friends and everything, uh, in business, you can have to be respectful, but you know, I remember going through meetings that sometimes there were, they were difficult, but we would be able to walk into the corridor and on the way out and I'd say, look, I, I felt you were a bit uncomfortable with what was said. Uh, and the person would say, yeah, I think so. I think the person didn't respect me. I said, well, look, let's take it easy. Let's go grab a coffee. Yeah. Well, we don't, can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so I, I think human beings like to intermingle. And I think that will come back. The only thing that's different is that now we know we can do things um, differently. And as a result, we have options in the way we're going to do things. Yeah. Uh, let's get started. There's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. And again, I, I'm super excited that you're on. I mean, when I was when I was thinking about creating this podcast and, you know, creating a platform through which, you know, people that work behind the scenes uh, of not only politics, but of any industry or any field uh, could be 
put to the forefront and um, you know showcased uh, because of the contribution they make to, to to Quebec society. One of the f- the first images I got in my head was yours. I'm like, this is the example of the person that would be ideal for this this podcast. I mean, you are the very definition of what the backstage means, right? In politics, mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, you've been involved with the Quebec Liberal Party since the late 70s. You know, you climbed the ranks, you became the director, uh, you played a prominent role in advising almost all the the, the, the Liberal Party uh, leaders since Claude Ryan. You've held senior positions, you know, such as chief of staff to most of these premiers. Uh, like you said, you've represented Quebec as its uh, director, uh, as its delegate general in New-, in New York, you know you're often called upon uh, for political commentary uh, to various media. You're an author. You know I have your book. It's an excellent book, which we're going to talk about. And of course, your favorite thing of all, as you like to say, um, is you know the, your passion for teaching. I mean, there's there's a lot of things in that, and I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of things behind. But it's just to illustrate to the people watching or listening. Um, you know, the incredible career that you've had behind the scenes of Quebec politics. I mean, do you ever take a moment to look back and wonder, geez, man, well, you know, what a career I've had? Well, you're very kind. Obviously, I, I've done the things I wanted to do. So I'm I'm not, um, uh, you know, sad and, and uh, uh, regretful. Um, uh, in fact, I've done basically this, what I really wanted to do. Teaching remains probably the most significant um, uh, I, I, my, the joke I say is that teaching paid me less than any other job, but it's the one that made me richer than any other job because you're able to make a difference in the life of a person. And today what makes me happy on Facebook and on, uh, on Twitter is when I have former students who are now, of course, uh, nearing their retirement, uh, tell me about their lives and tell me how they're doing. And some of them are unfortunately have to battle an illness and they inform me that they, they got, they beat cancer, you know, and you said to say to yourself, well, look, I remember this young lady or this young man uh, when they were uh, 15 and 16 years old, and now they're parents, uh, and they had a, a life-threatening disease, and they're coming out of it, and they're remembering me as a teacher, and remember, and, and happy that they're reconnecting with me. So that's been the most rewarding job. Uh, politics is making a difference in in society as a whole, as opposed to in the case of one individual, and that also was very very rewarding. I think I was um, I worked with good people, even those who are in the opposition uh, were people who I think did did politics for the right reasons, and I respected them, and I'm still friends with people from all political parties. But it was a, 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 an engagement to try to make a difference in society and, and the community as a whole. And then the third one in business, uh, I went into business uh, with an established company, so I didn't do it to become uh, rich. I was well paid. I don't complain, but I asked for a little bit of freedom. And one of the freedom I asked my uh, the owners of the company was that I'd be able to accept to do media work and sometimes to express my political opinion. Uh, I was, I, I am a federalist. I believe in progressive politics, uh, and I uh, and I'm also uh, uh, um, uh, a, a, you know a liberal in, in in my affiliation. And I told my my new uh, the new the owners of the company. I said, look, I don't want to end up having to deny what who I am. And they said, no problem. You can go and defend and express your point of view. We can we can live with that, which means to say that some clients may not have liked it, you know. But I established a relationship with my clients 
that um, that uh, made it possible for me to do it. So overall, I've I've had the career I wanted to have, um, and um, and I'm and I'm very grateful that I've had good health along the way, and so I've been able to do it. Now I'm I'm past the retirement. Uh, the mandatory, or at least I should say the retirement age of 65, but I'm still active uh, because I, I believe that uh, retirement will come uh, probably in the other world. Um, and so until I, as long as I'm healthy and I feel good and I look at young people like you, George, and if ever, if, if ever I can be either helpful in advice, either I can be encouraging in my example and what I do things, I feel good about that. So retirement for me is uh, is not uh, something that I'm aiming for. I will do less. Yes, I. Uh, you talked about books. Uh, I did two books on U.S. politics. I uh, contributed. I did my own uh, biography in politics. I uh, worked uh, as a uh, ghostwriter in the uh, on the the life of Mr. Saputo, Lino Saputo, for the cheese the cheese uh, con- uh, conglomerate. Um, and I've got another couple of book plans in my mind. At least one more and uh and i keep writing on u.s politics so so i i feel uh i'm i'm i do a variety of things i don't like to be caught up doing only one thing Mm -hmm. and um but i have to be inspired by what i do and uh so i was very happy to accept your invitation for the podcast because uh, in my view this is the new technology this is basically uh, we're having a conversation we're not having an interview and i think there's not too many forums in the past uh, that was able to do that. I think we, you're you're in a process. You and other people who do podcasts, bringing the virtual world a step ahead than what we perhaps had before the virtual world, mm-hmm. where we were only interviewing to get a news story and pushing to get uh, to get a front page uh, admission of sorts. You know, you speak about inspiration. I, I just want to go back to how this you know, this whole political thing started for you. I mean, what was that moment for you where, you know, the switch goes off and you know that this is where you belong? Like, you know, the, 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 the political spheres, uh, like this is where you want to go. This is where your interest is. I think um, my parents um, talked politics, but they were not involved. So I can't say because of my parents. I can say that political shows and political uh, leaders were on television when I was growing up and therefore their names were like familiar names um and and when there was an election my father uh, uh, owned a uh, a shoemaker shop and people would come to get their shoes fixed to get their shoes shined um and the discussion on what was happening in politics was something i heard uh, and that was an interest but it's not enough to say that it's because of that every young person between the ages of uh, of uh, 12 and, and and 15 may have you know probably experienced something like that i would say uh, the um, uh, nuke, the cuban missile crisis uh, got us um, uh, you know mobilized the, the schools uh, the teachers talked about it and then about a year later john f kennedy got assassinated and I remember where I was that day. I remember what I did the rest of that day. And I remember what I did that weekend as if it happened just about two to two weeks and two weeks ago, you know? And then, so that I think was probably a moment, uh, but I, there was a, a public speaking contest in, in uh, my high school graduating year of which I participated. 
and won the school competition, won the regional competition, and came in third in the provincial competition. So I was, I was interested in talking about politics in those speeches. So when you put it all together, um, it it uh, led me to to study political science. And in 1968, when Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of um, of John Kennedy, decided to run for the presidency, uh, I was very much excited by that. And I followed it. And of course, uh, when he was assassinated a few months later, um, I, you know, I was an adult, uh, but I cried like a child. Uh, it uh, hurt. Uh, and of course, Martin Luther King was uh, a leader at the time who inspired me a lot. And he died just two months before. So I would say it started there. And then, of course, in Quebec, there was the um, uh, the debates on language and the, and the Constitution that came up later in the years. But if you had to ask me which, uh, how did you get excited in politics, I would say probably U.S. politics was more uh, what got me going. But I ended up uh, obviously being very active in Canadian and Quebec politics. But but it, it, it started essentially in the 60s, uh, a mix of uh, of public speaking uh, contest, uh, the Kennedy years. Um, these were things that if you would have asked me in 1969, would you ever do politics? I would have answered yes. I don't know when, I don't know how, uh, but I will do it someday. And uh, ended up doing it about, uh, you know, around 1978 is when I got to start to get involved. Because you do, you do a fantastic job in your book. Uh, you know, you, you You know, you know, in the introductory uh, lines and in the beginning of your book, it, it's amazing how you uh, you dress the, the the context in which you were brought up, right? I mean, the environment that you were brought up in, uh, the fact that you were playing with English-speaking kids, but also yeah. you were very much in tune with what was happening in you know the French society uh, in general, what was happening, and everything that was boiling up in Quebec around. You know, Quebec nationalism, the the Révolution Tranquille, you know, the Quiet Revolution. Uh, like you said, the the inspiration around the great American leaders, um, and, and in general, just the attachment that your parents kind of guided you to have with Quebec culture. Uh, and it's funny because I was reading that in your book, and I was thinking, not much seems to have changed. I mean, how crucial for your engagement. Um, in politics was that whole issue around the, the French language debate because you do mention that very often in your book. Well, it was very central because, uh, first of all, my father's uh, shoemaker shop was in uh, Rosemount in the parish of Saint-Marc, uh, and it was a French-speaking. We were the only family that didn't have a French name. So my father was born in Italy. Uh, my father uh, uh, came here uh, speaking only Italian and learned some French, uh, learned French and then learned English. Uh, and by the time I was born, uh, my uh, my father um, uh, was 40 years old. My grandparents on my father's side had passed away. My grandmother never came to um, to Canada. My grandfather did come, uh, but he he would go back and you know maybe earn a little bit of money because they were not that that rich. And then um, uh, my grandmother passed away, and my father, my grandfather, then uh, became uh, a resident of Canada, and he passed away before I was born. My grandparents on my mother's side were English.
English and unilingual English. So we only spoke English when they were present, when they were present. And when I was, um, when I was shortly after, my first language was English. And my mother insisted that I be bilingual because for her, bilingualism was a sign of intelligence so far as she was concerned. So she says, I'm going to speak to him in French. And for about six months to a year, she apparently uh, spoke to me only in French. And I don't recall when I learned French, but it was not my first language. English was my first. And since my Italian grandparents had passed away, I was never really exposed to to Italian at home. My father uh, had become very uh, Canadian, very Quebecois. So my father would speak to my mother in in French. Uh, My mother would uh, sometimes respond to him in English. But the bottom line is that was, the home was French and English, and I went to to English school, uh, and and so that um, that had a lot to do with my all my childhood friends uh, on the street in Rosemount spoke only French. They were not bilingual, but I went to an English school that had a lot of Italian kids and other cultural communities, um, and uh, and so um, uh, I was mixed. I had a, a multicultural atmosphere at school. I had English as the major language in school. My my language uh, of play or of um, on the street was French, um, and uh, so I was mixed with all of this, you know. And uh, when I, I I married, I married a French speaking person, and um, again the kids when they were born they were raised in French, but uh, my wife said, "Wait a minute." Um, my the mother of my children, uh, she says I want them to to be as bilingual as you are. So I'm going to. We have a right under the law to send them to English school. So my girls went to English school. Today I speak to my daughters in English, but they have their their uh, their partners in life are are unilingual. Uh, I, uh, excuse me. I speak to my daughters in French, but their partners in life are unilingual English. So we go sometimes from when I'm alone with them, we'll speak in French, and when the partners are in the room, we speak in English. Right. So I've been really, I you know, I've I, I I've been just exposed to uh, the variety of languages, and that's uh, influenced me a lot uh, in the choices I made and in the causes that it inspired me in politics. I mean, John, how, how is it possible? Because your involvement in politics also started around, you know, this whole issue with French and the, the, the French language debate. Yeah. There was this mounting, um, uh, you know, the, the, the mounting fever of, you know, the independence in the late 70s and 80s. And that's when you kind of came into the game. How is it possible that after all these decades, we still haven't found like a plausible solution to this. I mean, how how have we not been able to figure this one out? <laughs> I mean, it just it's, well, it keeps coming. It's, and even recently, now, I mean, yeah, federal uh, MP that you know that came out you know, in one of her committees and said some stuff. Uh, you, you know, they're they're legislating in Ottawa, in Quebec, we're we're trying to amend French language bills. Uh, how is it possible that we're still in this? Well, you know, in some ways, uh, the reality is the following. We have in North America, basically three languages that are spoken. You have Spanish, you have English, and you have French. French is the language that's the least spoken uh, of those three because the concentration of the French language is in Quebec and some uh, parts of the rest of Canada, but it's very much a minority language in in the rest of Canada. And uh, a lot of French Canadian, um, uh, excuse me, French, yes, French Canadian people in other provinces have actually lost their language. And there were legislation in the course of history that 
that did nothing to really improve uh, their attachment to the French language. There were bills that were passed in, in Ontario. There were bills that were passed in Manitoba that, that did not respect French language rights. So it's quite um, an achievement that uh, French is still spoken in, in other parts of Canada. Quebec, of course, for many, many years, um, had the, the highest birth rate in the, in the country. And that the highest birth rate started to go in the other direction to have to the lowest birth rate in the country in the 1960s. And there were a lot of studies that were made that showed that immigrants coming to Quebec were uh, getting or integrating into the uh, English community and the French speaking community were not having as not the same high number of children. And there were studies that said that the French language is going to lose its presence um, in even in Quebec and that uh, you needed language legislation to make sure that immigrants uh, would go to French school, would learn the French, um, and that businesses would uh, would uh, uh, operate in French, and that we would be able to hire somebody uh, uh, where French was the uh, language of work. And if you needed to to have a second language, well, it, the job had to dictate it. And so uh, there was a need for for language laws. Uh, the first big crisis we had in the, was in the nineteen. 1960s with the St. Leonard school crisis where a lot of uh, Italian parents had sent their kids to English school and the uh, nationalist movement of the day wanted to prevent that from happening. So it became quite problematic. And in the 1970s, we we were exposed to language laws. Uh, Bill 22, which was which made French the official language of Quebec, done by liberals, by the way, Robert Bourassa. And then uh, Bill 101, which basically um, uh, made provisions for French in the, uh, in the workplace uh, and um, made sure that the, uh, the English, um, excuse me, that uh, French was the predominant um, uh, language in the province. Uh, and to use another word as opposed to official language, it was to be the common language. And um, and uh, some of the nationalists who push for French also push for Quebec being independent. If Quebec has all the powers, then we're going to have a better control on our future. Not every nationalist felt like that. There were some nationalists uh, uh, who worked with Mr. Bourassa who believed that we can be part of Canada, but we can we can make sure that French remains uh, protected and that we promote French. And um, so I came into politics when when there, there was a nationalist movement that wanted to separate Quebec from Canada, and there was a nationalist uh, 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 component that wanted to stay within Canada, but believed that we needed to do things to protect the French language. So I came into politics during those periods. So I lived through referendum 1980, uh, where Levesque, René Lévesque of the PQ was now in office, and he asked uh, for a mandate to separate from the rest of, uh, of Canada. Uh, uh, then uh, there was another referendum in 1992, which uh, had a constitutional um, deal offered to Quebec under Charlotte, the Charlottetown Accord. Uh, and then there was the 1995 referendum, which nearly ended up 50-50. Um, and so the, those issues have never really completely been resolved and completely disappeared. And I don't think they will be even 20, 30 years from now when I won't be around to, to, uh, to answer your questions. And, and, uh, and I don't think it's abnormal. I think the key thing is to find solutions as opposed to try to, to think that we can make the issues go away. Uh, Quebec 
the French language will be a minority language in North America. Therefore, it will be always under threat. And with the uh, the material that we hold in our hands, uh, you know, which is very uh, Anglo uh, culturized, uh, the uh, the um, you know, I think we can we can expect to um, to still have the uh, the issues uh, very much. Uh, at the center of uh, of the debates, so um, so I'm I'm not surprised to see that there's a bit of a language issue uh, raising starting to raise between the federal government and and the the Quebec government regarding uh, federally chartered companies. I think they can find a solution. I don't think it's a, a unresolvable, but um, it's it's not something that will disappear. The Quebec wanting to separate from Canada is less popular than it was. That I can assure you. The young people are much more international, much more travel-wise. They like to go outside Quebec. They want to try new challenges. And Quebec companies have actually done very well looking for markets around the world. So they know that English is very much the language uh, of commerce across the the, the world. Uh, but French is um, is a, a language that um, that is uh, going to be a major language. Uh, it is a major language in in Africa and when Africa develops um, its its economy in ways that uh, uh, that will be very competitive with the rest of the world uh, French will become an important uh, will remain an important language uh, and um, so I, I'm optimistic I'm not going to predict to you that those issues will go away they won't you will always have a part of Quebec that will want to be a separate country but there will always be a an important part of Quebec that believes that Canada is our country and that Quebec helped to develop Canada and therefore want to stay but but all the groups will always uh, you won't be too many people in Quebec who will tell you well we'll adapt if it's only English has spoken no we'll fight for, for the French language and I'm even though I'm anglophone by culture I'm francophile by by attitude and so I'm I'm very much in favor of protecting the French language for me it's not a problem and it's not contradictory with the fact that uh, my first language is uh, is uh, English no, but I agree with you, and I appreciate the fact that uh, there were strict measures in Quebec. Because I mean, look at me now. I, I'm a, I'm a Bill One Hundred One kid, right? I mean, I yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I'm and I'm happy about that. Uh, I mean, we speak a language that even the rest of Canada, or in large parts of Canada, don't speak. So I, I think we have to be great, grateful for that. But you know, if we go back to 1980, you know, that first referendum. Tell me how that was. Tell me the atmosphere around that period. I mean, I wasn't born yet. Uh, it was just a year before. But I mean. You know, you, we look back at this period and, you know, the PQ was at a peak politically. How did they not manage to win that referendum with all that popularity that they had? And, and to the point where even after they lost that referendum, the liberals um, in 1981, in the 1981 general election, couldn't even win it. It's such a weird thing for me. You know, you look back at this time and you're like, Okay, they lose the referendum, but they managed to still win the general election after that. So, what is going on in this period? Well, you know, it's very much uh, very typical of Quebec because Quebecers are very prudent. Um, uh, they, um, they, uh, there was a saying that in French that said that Quebec will give, ils vont donner tous les coups de pied sauf le dernier. They will kick at the federal government as much as they they can, except they won't give that last kick because uh, Quebecers um, are very sensitive about 
uh, their financial security, their cultural security. If they are insecure culturally, they will be tempted to to take some chances politically speaking. And I think this was what was happening in the 60s and 70s. There was a certain insecurity about language and culture. And the Salvinist movement uh, captured the imagination of young people. These young people today are my age now. They're all baby boomers uh, on the Porsche, uh, you know, uh, retiring or about to retire. Uh, and the young people are millennials today and they are a lot a lot different. They're used to the French, to the um, internet. They're used to uh, uh, having friends that uh, speak different languages, even the religious signs uh, uh, don't bother them as much as it seems to bother uh, um, the more elderly people because for them, the elderly people have to fight the dominance of the, of the Catholic religion. And they said, well, you know, uh, we're not going to bring in a, have another religion uh, trying to dominate us. So the, there's a reaction there. But when you talk to young people, they say, look, my best friend, she wears a, she wears a, you know, a scarf. Uh, my uh, my other friends he has a kippa. I mean, they don't care about that. It doesn't really bother them that much. So I would say in the 1980 referendum, you had cultural insecurity uh, combined with with um, with uh, political affirmation, and the Parti Québécois seemed to capture a lot of the young people's uh, dreams and imagination. Now they did not have the numbers to win. This was a 60-40 result, um, and um, and then the federal government uh, and the federalist forces in Quebec had an opportunity to try to find a solution so we wouldn't have to face that again. Uh, the Liberals uh, did not run, uh, in my view. Uh, a campaign that was inspiring. I was there when we were doing it. I think we had a great team. I think we had a great leader, but he was not inspiring as uh, perhaps Mr. Levesque was and our 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 um, uh, constitutional propositions depended very much on um, on uh, the federal government, uh, you know, uh, be willing to do it. And they decided right after the referendum to to act with Levesque in office. So uh, Levesque, of course, uh, uh, you know, went along with it because he, the referendum, he had lost it. But the um, the uh, negotiations didn't work out and finally uh, when the election came in 1981 the people said well we're going to go back with René Levesque not for separation but we know he's going to stand up for us so he got a second term and that's what happened you know and uh, this result was 60-40 you'll say well in 1995 it was like 51-49 you're right but that's because there had been an attempt to solve the problem after 81 called the Meech Lake Accord, and that failed. And Quebecers, I think, were really upset. And they say, they said, look, unless uh, we put our fist on the table, uh, the rest of the country will never listen. And remember, our referendum questions in both 1980 and in 1995, never, never, and I, re- I make the emphasis on never, promoted outright separation. They asked for mandates to negotiate a new agreed, a new arrangement with the rest of the Canada and have the a second referendum approve it. This is a, a, a lot different from Brexit, right. where basically you are asking to leave right. and, and no, nobody had a second chance to adopt uh, a, a, through a referendum. So Brexit works in the next month or so, uh, whereby there's no, uh, no deal with the rest of the, uh, Europe. Uh, Britain will be uh, on its own. 
uh, that we never, never went that way. We always had uh, a, a sort of like a, a safety uh, uh, provision, you know, and um, and as a result, uh, uh, I'm not surprised, but it's clear that in 1980, the, the um, result was a lot stronger for federalism and the federalists missed an opportunity in the years that followed to solve the problem where the only issue we would have been talking about today would not be the constitution. We'd also be talking, we'd only be talking about language. Language will always be there. Yeah. That's an issue. You know, the, the, the period following that first referendum, I mean, for you, it was pretty significant. Uh, I mean, it defined uh, for you, uh, you know, a more uh, active role and presence in, you know, what we call the political machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you climbed up those ranks in senior um, staff positions. How, how was that for a son of, an, uh, of immigrant parents, uh, I, you know, at a time where I can only assume there weren't that many people from diversity in high office. Uh, I mean, how were you and other members from diversity perceived uh, at that point in time? Because I remember in your book, you also talk about in, in 1985 where you, you wanted to run as a candidate and you were rejected from a riding because of your name. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was too foreign for people. Uh, I mean... How was that whole reality? I mean, you, you know, as, you know, John Paracella, you know, I mean, it's like such an exotic name for people that have been used to whatever the reality was back then to have reached, you know, th- these positions. Well, I think what happened in in uh, in the writing that um, that uh, sort of like uh, believed I would lose the writing uh, because of my name, uh, and therefore they they uh, they didn't think that it was it was a good idea. That was the writing of Anjou, my home writing, by the way, and I ended up running in the writing of Mercy which was a majority French-speaking writing, but there was more cultural communities than there was in Anjou. So uh, I ran there, and um, and, and that worked, but it, uh, it had not worked any other writing. I think the reality uh, was that um, a lot of the cultural communities um, were not seen as being fully integrated in the reality of, of French Quebec. Uh, I, because of my uh, upbringing in Rosemount, had a greater um, understanding of it, and my French was very fluent, and so I could pass like a French Canadian in some places. But my name was an English first name and an Italian second name, um, so I was uh, I was actually uh, quite fortunate to be able to. Uh, play the roles I've played, but I think it's because I also worked uh, at it and also listened a lot uh, and tried to learn. When I was a high school teacher, by the way, I used to, I invited René Lévesque. I talk about that in my book. I invited René Lévesque because I wanted the students to know that René Lévesque wasn't a traitor. He just had a different point of view about where Quebec should go, and he wanted to um, make Quebec a separate uh, or an, an independent country, but one that would still have links with the rest of the country. But we would be Quebecois and not Canadien. Um, and so I said, I want my students to be exposed to that. I didn't want to, to be converted because I did, I wasn't converted. I mean, Levesque, I, I had a conversation with him that lasted about an hour before, and, and I was very clear with him. I said, you know, I'm not a, a sovereignist, Mr. Levesque. I, but I think my students need to be exposed to somebody like you, who I think is a very reasonable, honest person. Um, and I want them to grow up. 
making the choice uh, based on on facts, not based on uh, on prejudice. You know, and he was very very grateful, and he said, "Look, uh, I have no problems with that." And and he was very good in the meeting. He he charmed everybody so much that at the end of the of the hour uh, so meeting, people gave him a standing ovation. Uh, but he didn't convert anybody. But he just made people realize that he wasn't an enemy, that he wasn't some kind of of a dangerous person. So I always I've always worked in that direction. And to, today I prom I am part of a group that's promoting the French language with Pauline Marois, who's a political from a different political family than me. Um, so uh, my attitude is to be involved, to be you know the, the there's a saying that says you got two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice before you speak. And, um, <laughs> excuse me. and I uh, try to, um, to work in ways that, um, I try to look at what unites us more than what divides us. And, um, and I think the French language, uh, can be a uniting factor. Uh, on the other hand, you have to respect the minority rights as well. And the English speaking community um, has been here for years, has developed institutions. And now on top of that, there is probably the most bilingual group in all of Quebec. So there's ways we can work together and uh, rather than work apart. On the question of the independence of Quebec, I still believe Canada is, is a better solution for, Can for Quebec. And I think Quebec can influence Canada uh, in directions that, um, that give them additional powers. I mean, we have more powers in immigration than the rest of the country. We, um, we have a case de depot. The rest of the country doesn't have a case de depot. We have, we have a, an international profile that no other province has around the world. We're in, we're in something like 18 nations with 33 off offices. No province comes anywhere close to that. So there are things we can do that are different and we can do it within Canada. And my goal has been to try to convince people of that, that we can find solutions within Canada, but we have to be respectful of a different point of view and learn what the other point of view is about. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that you're mentioning that, that whole story with René Lévesque because, you know, as you know, I worked over 11 years in Laurier Dorian and before he left the Liberal Party to create the PQ, he was elected in that area, in that writing yeah. in Laurier. And it's funny because, you know, we've, you know, I've been campaigning there since 2007 and very often I've knocked on doors where, you know, obviously older people have answered, people that were there that had elected him under the liberal banner and yeah, sure. living in Park X. And they would tell me all these stories about how, you know, amazing he was and uh, how they had supported him when he was a liberal and all that stuff. And, uh, and how he was a very charming personality and uh... yeah he was very very likable i mean he he was um a person who um who had a good uh, sense of he was he was a listener that's one thing about Levesque. he didn't uh, and uh he was very respectful of a different point of view and he has uh, uh, was born and raised in in i guess in Gaspésie in this in the village of uh, new carlisle where there was a sizable uh, Frank uh, Anglophone population, and he played with English kids when he his, his English, by the way, was actually uh, without ac without an accent and actually more fluent than Robert Bourassa's was, and um, and so Mr. Levesque uh, uh, was a person who had no problem switching to English, um, but uh, you know he was very conscious about uh, about changing the Canadian Federation to protect uh, the French language and to protect Quebec's interests. And when he felt that, um, that we couldn't do it, that's when he made the, 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 the shift towards um, independence. And, uh, uh, but he was not um, 
a hardline independentist. And in the years that uh, when he left politics, he he actually um, accepted Brian Mulroney's efforts to try to um, he called it the Bourisque, the good risk to try to see if we could find a solution within Canada. So René Lévesque was not uh, a hardline separatist, and uh, I'm glad I met him. I'm glad I introduced him to my students. I spoke to him a few times uh, while he was premier, um, but I will always be very respectful of who he was and what he represented. But uh, I didn't share his point of view, uh, especially with respect to uh, Quebec leaving Canada. You know, you me- you mentioned the Meech Lake and you know the second referendum and even the Charlottetown Accord and all the- and all those things. Tell me a little bit about that period between 1985 and 95. It was such a such a charged period, you know, in in Quebec's political history. I mean, you know, you have uh, Bourassa's French language bill. You had the Oka crisis. Uh, you know, a, a certain reinforcement of Quebec nationalism. Uh, like you said, the failed Mitch, uh, Mitch Lake and Charlottetown Accord. Uh, how was it back then to be like right in the middle of these things at a time, uh, at that time, and to be running the, the premier's government, uh, his cabinet? I mean, well, it was very, uh, it was exciting, uh, stressful, um, a lot of uncertainty. Um, there was polarization. Um, uh, it was not an easy time. Uh, I think the first big rendezvous. Uh, with history was the Meech Lake Accord. I think uh, when Barassa was able to negotiate with uh, Mr. Mulroney and the other premiers, the Meech Lake Accord, we all felt that we had finally gotten over the referendum of 1980 and that we were going in the right direction. Mr. Barassa uh, on, in 1988 had also uh, protected the French language uh, after a Supreme Court ruling uh, allowing for bilingual signs, and he put a notwithstanding clause because he felt the population wasn't ready and he wanted to make sure that French would be predominant, but he didn't want to... Um, He didn't want to prohibit another language, but he couldn't do that unless he put an notwithstanding clause. So four years later, four and a half years later, he removed the notwithstanding clause and he allowed English and other languages, Next, provided French was everywhere and provided French was more predominant. So that was the second big challenge he had, the language uh, issue uh, on that. Uh, the third one was Oka. Oka is something that I think uh, is a um, reflection of, of our insensitivity uh, to what First Nations uh, were, uh, you know, have faced. And we we have all kinds of studies right now that uh, indicate that we still have, uh, you know, ways to go in understanding. But it was clear that it was um, an issue that revolved around a decision by municipality to develop uh, what the uh, First Nation, the Mohawk First Nation, considered to be sacred lands. And there was not a sensitivity to the First Nations. And as a result, uh, there was barricades, and the barricades extended themselves um, to cover um, the uh, you know t- t- areas outside Montreal. One was the Mercier Bridge, and the other one was uh, in the Oka uh, region. Uh, so that was a third major crisis. And so now uh, comes the, if, or at least Mitch was positive, uh, but it didn't pass the test. It needed three years to be, to be, um, uh, to be in, uh, uh, approved, ratified, and, and it failed on the very, very last day. 
And so that got a lot of people upset. And a lot of people were in the streets that uh, weekend. And um, and people were hoping Barassa would become a separatist, but Barassa was not a separatist. And so he tried to work a deal um, that would build from the failure, but build towards something that would be positive. And that's what led to the Charlottetown Accord, but that was rejected by Quebecers who didn't feel it went far enough, and by the rest of the country, where some provinces were in favor, others were not. Some felt it went too far, others felt it didn't uh, didn't do the thing, the thing. And I think there was a lot of unpopularity with the Mulroney government at the at the time, and I think that didn't help. Um, and so um, that was where I was, uh, the Premier's Chief of Staff, throughout all that period. And um, and so it was stressful. It was uh, a lot of uncertainty, and there was a lot of, uh, uh, but there was a lot of excitement. Uh, and then came the referendum of 1995, and um, and the PQ had just won office, and uh, they had won uh, government, and the, and so they decided to do a referendum in, in year one, and um, and we had to get ready, uh, but we didn't have um, the wind in our sails, and uh, we we couldn't talk about changing Canada when we had failed uh, after 1980, and we had failed with Meech Lake, and we had failed with Charlottetown. So we we didn't have a very inspirational um, message. Our only message was say no to separatism. Well, people said, uh, "Wait a minute, now that's not." There's more to our problems than than saying no to separatism, and we want uh, a yes to change. And uh, you failed three times: uh, Trudeau um, uh, repatriating the constitution, and uh, you know after the referendum, Meech Lake succeeding at being negotiated and then rejected when it came to ratifying it, and people who had changed their minds. Uh, Charlottetown being rejected overall. So, um, so we did. We weren't very convincing. In your book, John, you mentioned that you know, had there not been uh, a Meechlik, and you know, had we only had the Charlottetown Accord, things may have turned out differently uh, for Quebec and Canada. Uh, well, probably uh, the reason is very simple. The resentment that people had, a lot of people in Quebec felt that Meech Lake was was more uh, was more generous than Charlottetown, and to some extent, I can understand that point of view. But when you really look at the two bills or the two accords, you realize that that the accord, the big difference was that Charlottetown was giving something to other parts of the country, including the First Nations. Charlottetown, uh, Meech was just for Quebec because Quebec was upset. But we basically saved everything Quebec was getting, plus we made a few more gains, and other parts of the country were making more gains. If if uh, the failure of the Michel Lake Accord had not poisoned the political atmosphere, you're right. I, I would go as far as to say that Charlottetown might have been the solution. But now nobody talks about going back to Charlottetown because Charlottetown was seen as a failure. But when analysts look at it, especially in the world of, uh, of the, in the university world where you can actually, you know, nobody's going to vote. Nobody, you can study things uh, and with, with less pressure and less stress and without the political uh, um, uh, process in place, you realize that Charlottetown, there was some positive things. It kept most of Charlotte, it kept most of Meech and gave Quebec uh, some extra guarantees. It also helped the First Nations. It also uh, was giving what Alberta wanted with respect to a reformed Senate. So there was a lot of positive stuff that was done. And, um, and of course, uh, uh, for the French language in other provinces as well. You know, all this thing that led to the to that second referendum, and I remember the second referendum. Uh, I, I remember 
because uh, you know I, my family's always been involved in the in the community in the Greek community, and I I remember leaders uh, in the community just working so hard, getting people, mobilizing them. There was so much, there was so much effort put into that campaign. I don't know if people understood how close uh, it would have been. I remember that night sitting in front of the TV with my parents, just looking at the results coming in, and it was nail biting. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the result. I mean, 51, uh, um, yeah, 5149. I mean, uh, it, it could not have been closer. And in, in, uh, in addition to that, I, I still remember the, the, the remarks that Premier Parizo made with respect to the immigrants and, uh, and, uh, and to the rich that had pretty much caused this referendum to be lost. And, and that had like this deep impact, especially... Obviously, my parents, who at that point, I mean, they weren't, they weren't even considering themselves immigrants anymore. After 30 years or whatever, you're pretty much yeah. more Quebecer than you are from, you know, wherever you come from. And uh, I've spoken to so many people that, um, even, even separatists that took that wrong. They're like, well, what is going on over here? That, that's not right. Mm. Uh, and and uh, it, it kind of, you know, it, it implanted itself kind of in my in my memory about what the PQ was, right? Uh, until much later on when I started doing politics, I just thought, you know, the PQ is the enemy of the immigrants. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they had, they, they, uh, they certainly, um, when the sovereignist movement uh, came into being uh, and the PQ got, got formed, it's clear that um, the cultural communities and the Anglophone community felt under siege or felt threatened. And so there were very, very few uh, non-Francophones who were in the PQ movement. There were a few, but very, uh, very few, uh, and they were not terribly influential. So when the time came to that second referendum, um, a lot of people were were um, felt again uh, in the Anglo community and in the cultural communities threatened by um, the fact that uh, sovereignty could take place. And when the vote was so close, and Mr. Parizo made those unfortunate remarks the night of, a lot of people felt rejected. And that, that and I think that transformed Quebec to a large extent. It. Uh, First of all, we 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 have not done a referendum since, and um, uh, secondly, um, um, the, the PQ I think regrets that moment uh, deeply. Mr. Parizeau I think regretted it as well and resigned not long after, and uh, and I think um, uh, Quebecers today are much more sensitive to those things, and and I think uh, we're we're at a point right now where we're we're looking uh, in ways that we can do things together much more than doing things apart. But back then, it was more polarized. As much as we say U.S. politics was polarized is in this last election with Trump versus Biden, there were Democrats versus the Republicans. I could say that the most polarized period that I felt in Quebec uh, in my lifetime, um, clearly, uh, the 60s were, uh, the 70s were polarizing, uh, but at the same time, you could sense that that uh, we were looking for a solution to the problems. In 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 1995, we got an impression that maybe we we're going to stop talking to each other, and that wasn't good. And I think we've come we've come away from that. It's been 25 years now, and um, and I think that we're we're away from that. So that that's 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 good. Uh, we're going to be closing it up, but before we do, because you know you mentioned about the way that you did politics and how you've always been open to at least listening to the other side 
you know, even though you don't uh, necessarily agree uh, with the positions, uh, and in general, you're just known for your, you know, for a political service and a career that is nearly devoid of, you know, partisan combativeness and, you know, animosity. Uh, you've been known for, for your desire to see Quebec progress, irrespective of partisanship. And, and it, I think it's definitely the reason you've created and maintained, like you said, all these friendships, uh, you know, with different people across party lines. Do you think, in your opinion, this is a more effective way of doing politics? I would give you as a short answer, yes. I, I believe that um, we're talking a lot about the polarization uh, now that Trump's leaving and the Republicans refuse to, uh, not many anyway, recognize Biden. I believe that the solution to America will be that they work together. Uh, and I think the solution to Quebec and Canada is that we find ways that we can work together. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with each other. It doesn't mean that we uh, are going to convert the other side, that there will only going to be one party. That would be worse. It would be like a dictatorship. It, there will always be different parties, but there are ways of finding solutions. And I believe dialogue, listening, and trying to find um, areas where we can compromise is a step forward. And But always done it done with, with two words in mind, respect and civility. In other words, respect for what the other person says and civility in doing it by debate, by process, by listening, by provo providing amendments. I mean, these are the things, in my view, that, that have served me. Uh, I'm very proud of, of, um, of being a Quebecer, but I'm also very proud of being a Canadian. And I think many countries in the world would have lived through our our issues probably would have uh, ended up fighting it in the streets with guns. Uh, we were able to do it with ballots, not bullets. We were able to do it through a referendum, not, not civil war. Um, and I still am an optimist for the future. Uh, and I look at the young millennials, uh, both French, uh, the community, the French community, because I teach in the French uh, community, and uh, but I also uh, know the English-speaking community, work with people who've graduated from the um, English-speaking community. I think we've got a generation that's inspirational, a generation that's looking for solutions, a generation that's uh, fundamentally civil and respectful. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I would go as far, and uh, maybe that's the best way of closing. I'm not only an optimist, but I'm confident that uh, we'll find solutions much more than we'll find division, discord, and, um, and uh, confrontation. Beautiful. I love it. Great way to end it. Uh, John, I've taken a lot of your time. Uh, again, Pleasure. I want to I wanna, I wanna thank you and I really, really do appreciate uh, the time that you took. Uh, hopefully soon, you know, we'll get to see each other again. Yeah, uh, we'll grab a, a long coffee or a long lunch, but it'll be great to see you again. And it was nice seeing you and uh, you're terrific. You did a good job and you made me feel very comfortable. Thank it was you. an honor to be with you. I appreciate it, John. Happy awesome. holidays to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.